Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Good morning, Harvest. I get to share with you today's scripture. Uh, it comes from Revelations 3, 7 through 13. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. This is the message from the one who is holy and true, the one who has the key of David. What he opens, no one can close, and what he closes, no one can open. You have little strength, yet you obeyed my word and did not deny me. Look, I will force those who belong to Satan's synagogue, those liars who say they are Jews but are not, to come and bow down at your feet. They will acknowledge that you are the ones I love. Because you have obeyed my command to persevere, I will protect you from the great time of testing that will come upon the whole world to test those who belong to this world. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take away your crown. All who are victorious will become pillars in the temple of my God. And they will never have to leave it. And I will write on them the name of my God. And they will be citizens in the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven, from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Thanks, Jeff. So before I launch into the message, uh, just a couple words of clarification. For those contemplating being baptized this time around, I just want you to know the pool that Pastor Frank referred to is a, a private pool at the home of a couple of my good friends. We're not going to be shouting over children doing cannonballs and things like that, so um, don't let that deter you from participating in the service. Also, I'm going to ask Jerry to go visit the RN's household this week and bring some healing after that skit and um, minister to his confused children who don't understand what we just thought. <laughs> you know, I, had the fir I first had the privilege of preaching from this text that Jeff shared with us when I was, in fact, a pastor at a church in Philadelphia. So I remember feeling really strange given it because I, I wondered were there any parallels, but in fact, the longer I lived, the, the more I felt like there weren't any parallels <clears throat> between that Philadelphia and this one. Of the seven churches that Jesus wrote letters to, there were only two that escaped any rebuke. There were only two of the seven churches that heard only positive affirmations and encouragements and j did not receive any rebuke. Now, obviously, there's no such thing as a perfect church. So it wasn't as if the two churches that escaped rebuke had no problems but in both churches, Jesus saw something that so pleased his heart and compelled him 
that he felt like it was not worth addressing whatever shortcomings they had. Because something about what they had so hit at the heart of what Christ wants from his church, from his bride, that he could handle all the other imperfections. So I think it stands to reason because if we are, if we understand what marriage is like, it's at some level, we know that that's true. You know, as long as you get certain things, you can overlook a lot of other things, right? I mean, nobody married a perfect person, did they? Besides Jeannie, anybody? Nobody. So nobody married a perfect person, but you get so much good with all the junk that at some point, because the essence is there, you move on. And really, that's, that's something important for us to see is that in his letter to the church in Philadelphia, just as with a letter to Smyrna, he saw something that really caused his heart to burst with joy. So what is it that he saw in this church? Well, I think the, the key is found in verse 8, where he says, you, I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So I think that's something important for us to to grab onto and understand is that the thing he saw in that church was what we might call in a simple word, faithfulness. But what's interesting is when we think about faithfulness, what do you usually think of? You know, when I say I've been faithful to you, usually what I mean is I've kept my word to you. In other words, I made a promise and then I honored it. But what Jesus is saying here is what pleased him so much about the church in Philadelphia is that they were faithful to keep his word. So I got to ask, what do you think that means? I mean, what does it mean that faithfulness would be defined as keeping someone else's word? How do you keep someone else's word? I, I think the best way to explore that question is if I tell you an allegorical story. Okay, a story like a, a modern day parable. So I, w- I want you to imagine that you and a good friend who's a very experienced outdoorsman, an expert hiker, the two of you decide to go on like a week-long trek into the uncharted wilderness. Now, your friend who's a very experienced hiker has looked at all the the, the maps and um, has plotted a good course for you to explore. And so you set out loaded with gear and all that. But around day two, you grow bored of the predictability of this path. And so you say, you know, what if we go off the path? What if we go that way because you are lured by the adventure of the unknown? Now, your friend, because he's experienced, says, I'm not so sure that's the best idea, but you are just so dead set on it and your perseverance wins the day. And so you convince your friend and he gives in. So off you go, no longer on the charted course. You are just now in no man's land wandering about. And it's exciting because you have no idea what's coming next. Your know-it-all friend isn't going, and around the next bend, you're going to see a a strange-looking cactus. You have no idea what comes next. But part of the danger of that is you have no idea what comes next. And you see a little ravine, and you decide, I'm going to go for it. And you make a a very ill-advised leap. And as you land, you twist your ankle and your foot is hurt, and you know that's a serious wound. You're not going to be able to walk very far with a wound like that. And so you find a rock to lean against, so you sit down, and you say, you know what? Uh, I don't know what's going to happen here, but I can't make it back to the settlement. Somebody's going to have to go for help. Well, your friend knows what he's doing. He's strong. He's in good shape. He's experienced. So he says, all right, I'll go for help. You stay here. And as he's getting ready to leave, it's not like he knows where he is, but he could probably have a good chance of finding his way. And he looks in your eyes and says, no matter what happens or what it takes, I'm going to go and get help, and I'll bring that help back to you. The only thing you have to do 
is stay here. It won't do any good if I go and find help and come back and you're somewhere else. That will really, really tick me off and hurt you. So the only thing you have to do, look at me. Stay here. Don't go anywhere else. I promise I'm coming back. At first, it's not so bad. You've got the shade of this big rock. You're leaning against it. You're resting. You're eating your granola bars. But then towards sunset... You're down to the last little bit of water in your canteen. And as the sun is setting, you realize all you have is a mini mag light. And you don't get a wink of sleep. Because all through the night, animals you didn't even see during the day are starting to make sounds. And they're very close to you. And the, little, the battery in your little mag light goes out just as the sun is starting to rise. And you greet the sunrise with a deep sense of gratitude, of renewed hope. And so a new day, maybe your friend's going to show up, but around lunchtime of the second day, you're starting to really wonder, hey, did he maybe get eaten by one of those animals I heard at night? Did he maybe get lost? Did he maybe meet someone on the road and decide to just hang out with them and forget me? What, what happened to this guy? And so as the day wears on, your optimism starts to shift and you start to wrestle with doubt. And a voice inside you starts to say, hey... Maybe the best thing is not to wait for him, but to begin hobbling your way back to the direction you came from and see if you can meet him halfway. Just try to bring yourself into the rescue scenario. So as you're about to get up and walk away, you're faced with a dilemma. Because the one thing your friend said was, I promise I will come back, but you have to promise me that you'll believe that and stay where I left you. Do you see the scenario? Because that little story is meant to help us understand the very nature of what faith and faithfulness is all about. You know, a lot of times we, we reduce faithfulness to just, here are the rules God wants us to live by. How rigorously have you kept the rules? But see, if it's just about rule following, there will come a time when you stop caring about God's wrath. You stop caring about being one of the good guys. You don't have the motivation to follow the rules anymore. And so if faithfulness only comes down to rule keeping for us, we will not go very far in that kind of faithfulness. We have to understand that ultimately what faithfulness is, is not keeping our word to God, but guarding his word to us in our hearts so that we behave in a way consistent with what he told us things will be like. When he says, hang on, I'm coming, we hang on because we really believe he's coming. When he says, I will not let you die alone, we hang on because we believe that he will provide for us. When he says, my, my faithful will not go hungry, we believe that we will eat again someday. Everything that we go through, faithfulness will ultimately be rooted in our faith in him. See, the scenario of that little story is this. Your friend is doing all the hard work of rescue, isn't he? You're just sitting against the rock eating granola. He's out there. Who knows what, what wolves he's fighting off with a stick, and he's, he's kind of lost, and he's doing all the walking in the hot heat, and he's doing all the hard part. You're just waiting. So we can't say that it's an equal thing, this proposition of rescue. The one doing the rescuing does the heavy lifting. But your part is no less burdensome, is it? Because I think as human beings, we're wired for activity. 
we want to be the ones who make the difference, it's really hard for us to trust and remain. And so all of your hopes are placed on that friend coming through for you. You've placed all your hopes largely on two things. His ability to keep the promise he made and his motivation to keep it because he likes you. See, everything in your rescue depends on those two things. Can this guy really do it? And if he can, will he actually finish the process? Will he do it or will he get distracted or forget me? or go, oh, He's probably dead by now. I just, we'll find him later. How much does he love me and how powerful is he to keep his promises? And that's why faith and faithfulness can never, ever be separated. And I think that's one of the common mistakes we make as Christians is we don't really build our faith in this God, but we dwell a lot on whether we're being faithful to this God. And you can't really achieve one without the other. In fact, I would even argue that our faithfulness is impossible without first having a deep and abiding faith in the promises and the words of God. You know, faith can be a very powerful thing, But it's also not a very common thing. For a lot of people, our faith ends when the easiness of life ends. And hardship, pain, real fearsome things shake us to the root. Jesus himself in Luke 18.8 wondered out loud, When I come back, I wonder if I'm going to find any faithful people on the earth. I wonder when I come back how many people will still be alive and still be against that rock waiting because I told them I'd be back. Wouldn't it stink if you went through the journey of a lifetime, you lost a limb, you got bitten by animals, and you finally brought the cavalry cavalry back, and and you go, he's right here, and then you come around the rock, and the dude's gone. You're like, come on. Really? I went through all that, and you couldn't just stay here and wait for me. What did you think? And now, you know, what happens is the rescue is no longer available to the person who needed it because their faith didn't hold out long enough for them to see the rescue come. Both lose out because faith didn't endure. I think faith is powerful, but it's rare. And part of the reason it's rare is because life really challenges our faith, doesn't it? I mean... On Sunday morning, if, if the preacher's doing an okay job, you can be inspired for an hour and really, really want to believe. In fact, sometimes in the, this bubble of Sunday church, it can seem so believable when you hear the words of the preacher. But then you set out into the parking lot, you get in your familiar car, you drive to your familiar home, and suddenly what seemed so possible seems so impossible again. Life in our real world really challenges the kind of faith which pleases the heart of God. And so in, to, to a church that's being faithful, I mean, you know, we parents sometimes need to learn from Jesus. It seems like the only time we ever talk to our children is to scold them. They don't even get our attention until they mess up. But Jesus finds two churches that are doing great. And rather than going, oh, they're doing fine, just leave them alone. Let's just yell at the bad boys. He finds the two churches that are doing great and he goes, you know what you need? You need a little wind in your sails. You need encouragement that says everything you're doing, keep doing it to the end. You are doing exactly what I asked of you. Don't stop. That's really encouraging to hear. And so to this church, which is already doing what pleases God's heart from the church, 
He gives a couple words of encouragement, some promises that are meant to fuel them in the face of all of this faith that wants to die. So the first promise he gives is for us to build faith in the midst of rejection. Look at what it says here. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. Do you, you know all that business about opening and shutting doors is meant to say something like this. It doesn't matter who slams a door in your face. The only doors that ultimately matter are the ones that I shut and close, says Jesus. What happened in the city of Philadelphia was that the Jewish synagogue, which had a presence in the city, looked at all these Christians and said, we're excommunicating all of you. Get out. You're kicked out. You can't be Jews anymore. You can't come here to worship anymore. Now, in America, that wouldn't bother us. We're like, fine, forget it then. We're going to do our own thing over here. We wouldn't think much of it. But for these Jews, that was a painful experience to be kicked out of the synagogue. And here's why it was painful. Because in their minds as Jewish converts to Christianity, they didn't, they didn't think of Christianity as a new religion they were converting to. They thought of it as the ultimate fulfillment of their religion. To become a Christ follower for the Jewish convert was to become the most faithful and complete Jew there was. Because finally, the long-awaited Messiah was found. So to be kicked out of the synagogue was like, hey, how can you be kicking us out? We're the first Jews to finally get it. We met the Messiah. How can you be kicking us out? That's our heritage. That's our, that's our roots. We grew up in that synagogue. And you're kicking us out. It meant for them, they, they, they cut their family ties. They cut their social ties. It introduced all kinds of social and financial barriers for them. And I think some of us know exactly what that feels like. I've talked to some of you and I know that when you made a decision to follow Christ, it was in some of your families and your context, not a popular decision at all. Some of you endured great rejection and pain at the hands of people you loved because you decided to follow Jesus Christ. The question Jesus poses is this. Whose open and shut doors affect you the most? I mean, part of being a Christian is you're bound to have some doors shut in your face. When I was a pastor in youth group and later uh, when I was ministering to lots of young college-aged people, a lot of the counseling meetings I had was about, well, I met this awesome girl, but then she's not a Christian and I'm a Christian and I probably can't do it, right? I'm like, yeah, you probably, it's not a good idea. And the heartbreak of a door shutting simply because I'm going to stand on my faith. To be a Christian is to endure a lot of doors shutting in your face. That's going to be a part of the experience. But what Jesus says is everyone shuts and opens doors, but the ones I open stay open and the ones I shut stay shut. My doors are the ones you need to be paying attention to. There is a theme that runs throughout the New Testament, in the Gospels especially, where, where there's this whole teaching about shame and identification with Christ. And Jesus said in Mark 8.38, If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Here's what Jesus is saying. To stand for me 
at times is going to make you feel pretty embarrassed like a backwards yokel, the world will not clap at the things you say all the time. Let me give you some real-life scenarios. You're having lunch with some coworkers, and for some reason, somebody goes, Hey, you, Dave, uh, what's your view on gay marriage? Hey, thanks for ruining my lunch, man. We're going to go there, are we? And you know that according to your faith and your understanding of Scripture, there is a certain position that represents faithfulness to the Word of God. But there's also a tremendous societal pressure to have a certain view of that issue today. Many of us have a view on it that isn't the result of theological reflection, but really, if we're honest, of societal pressure. So at that moment, you're facing a real fork in the road because if you say what you really believe, everyone's going to be like, really? So you're saying that, uh, 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 and you're like, oh, man, I'm the bad guy all lunch. You don't even get to finish your chicken tenders. You're like, just go back to the office, hated. You're the pariah. What about this one? Um, hey, let's play a little quiz game. So, you're a Christian. Gandhi, heaven or hell? Really? Okay. Um, Gandhi, <laughs> well, he's a better person than me, but he really didn't trust Jesus as his Savior. So, you, you get the idea. There are certain things we believe to be true that if we actually voice them would prove to the world just how radically different and crazy we are to them. And the question is, have any doors been shut in your face because you've walked through the doors that Jesus has opened? See, I think when I was in college, faithfulness was taught to me as you wear your retreat T-shirt everywhere. You know, like I had the God's Gym and the Reborn instead of Reebok. I had all those shirts. And we'd wear them with pride to go to class. Like somebody, come on, ask me. Ask me about my shirt. Because I'm being bold. I would put my big study Bible on my desk. And you know, I'm trying to draw attention to my Christianity in some very overt ways. Everyone wore a cross. Everyone put a fish on their car. I'm trying to identify. And then people said, oh, that's silly. We shouldn't let our stickers and our clothing do the talking. We should let our hearts and our lives do the talking. And so we talked ourselves out of that overt witness, and we went a little more subtle, a little more organic. These are all wonderful words for cowardly, but really, I mean, let's just face it, because we just don't want to be outed until we're ready to be outed. So we walked into a closet and said, you know, we'll let people figure out we're Christians when they're ready to know this wonderful thing about us. And so we took the subtle approach. That might be okay, except that we took the subtlety too far. You know, you know how many people I've talked to and said, hey, there's this guy I've worked with for like five years, and I found out he's a Christian. It was such a happy discovery. What a coincidence. And I'm like, yeah, on the one hand, happy discovery. On the other hand, how jacked up is it that you work together every day for five years and only just now found out the other person's a Christian? Are we so subtle we can't even be identified to be persecuted. Uh, let me ask you, can anybody, apart from your self-proclamation, identify that you love Jesus in your normal settings, in your work setting, in your neighborhood? I mean, at the very least, the, the Christians in Philadelphia were commended because though there was a high cost to pay, they embraced their identity in Christ. And the city around them clearly knew you're not one of us. You're one of them. I wonder how many of our coworkers would be shocked to discover, you're, what, you're one of those people? I didn't know that. 
And as you hear those words, two feelings should strike you. What an opportunity for witness. And how could you not know that five years into it? Am I that undercover that no one knew? And so he encourages them. Listen, I'm going to open lots of doors. And the one that I open as the holder of the key of David is the one to eternity. That door will stay open as long as I say so. You walk through that door, it won't matter how many other people shut the door in your face. And in fact, one day, the very people who mocked you and belittled you for following me, I will vindicate you in their presence. They will come to acknowledge, even against their will, that they were the ones who got it wrong when it came to me. You know, I'll be honest with you, I'm a pastor, but even as I stand up for my view of certain things, as I try to give a a gracious and thoughtful but theologically faithful position on homosexuality, which is so difficult today, my skin is crawling the whole time. I just feel like, uh, I know how I look to you right now. I know how this all sounds. You're looking at me like I'm some hate-filled bigot who thinks people shouldn't have fair lives. And uh, how do I, but how am I going to be faithful as a citizen of heaven and a citizen of this place? How am I going to reconcile those two things? And in the end, if a door must shut in my face, which doors am I willing to see shut? And which doors am I willing to see opened? What Jesus says is one day, if you will hold on, you will be vindicated. And the mockers and the scoffers will know that, in fact, you, the the yokel, the buffoon who thought these ways, had the heart and mind of God on this issue. And you will be vindicated. And all the rejection you endure will be a distant memory because I will show you that you are the ones that I loved. Here's the second, and this is the the final one I'll give you this morning, is he gives some promises that will help them build and hold on to their faith in the midst of weakness and instability. Have you ever felt like God dealt you a really bad hand in the poker game of life? You keep getting two, six, eight, jack, queen, all different suits, and you're like, what is this garbage? And you look at your life and you go, come on, I'm supposed to compete, but I got nothing. I didn't get the height. I didn't get the looks. I didn't get the skills, the brains, the charms. I didn't get born into a ritual. What do I got? I'm, I'm handicapped at every turn, and I got to compete with all these other people. And then you get bitter because you look around at life and you see all these people. They're like, everything's so easy for me. <laughs> You know, I just think and it happens. And so you look at those people and like, ah, that's just not fair. I got to play this game against them. Do you ever feel that way? Like, why is it so hard? Why do I reach into my pocket and always come up with nothing but lint? It's so hard to live like this. And you feel like quitting and God says, be faithful. Faithful with what? What do I got? It should be encouraging then that Jesus clearly acknowledges I know you, Philadelphia, and I know you don't have much strength. Some, some preachers see that as a rebuke. Oh, you have no power. It's not that way at all. What he's saying is, I know that when you look at yourself in the mirror, you see nothing. You're a small church. 
you have very little resources. You have no voice or influence in your city. And yet, despite all these handicaps and the crummy card you have, you never fold. You stay in the game. I'm proud of you that even though you've got no competitive advantage, you never, ever stopped believing in me. That's what he's praising them for. I know you have very little strength. You don't have much that the world would respect. And yet, in spite of that disadvantage, you have been faithful. I think it's an easy thing, or at least an easier thing, to be faithful when we're stacked up and loaded for bear. When everything's going our way, faithfulness comes kind of easily to us. But it's the faithfulness in the midst of handicap that really brings glory to Jesus because it highlights that I didn't do this because I was flush. I did this because you got me through the whole thing. You know, Paul uh, was testifying about this thing he called the thorn in his flesh. This affliction he had that burdened him and weakened him, and he wanted so badly to be free of it, he cried out to God at least three times in a very significant way, can you just get rid of this? I can run fast and far if you would just get rid of this thing, God. Why do I have to walk with this? And God three times said, no, I'm going to let you keep that because it's good for your soul. It's in this affliction that you really understand how much you need my strength and how weak and limited your own strength is. And that's saying something because we live in a culture that celebrates human strength. Now, I'm not saying there's, nothing, there's anything wrong with human strength, but we have given it far more credit than it deserves. This thorn in the flesh would not be removed. But at the end, as Paul reflects on it, this is his testimony. Each time God said to him, him, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults, hardships, persecutions, and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What he's saying is, if you constantly walk through life feeling loaded down and handicapped and short one card, will celebrate that to the extent that it will force you to lean on God because those who don't have those handicaps will by instinct lean on themselves. A lot of us in this room are growing bored of Christianity because we've relied on ourselves so long and gotten by. And somewhere in your subconscious, you're really struggling with how necessary is God because I do pretty good on my own. I haven't sat around, had a devotion like I did in college for a long time, but nothing has fallen apart. My children are beautiful and healthy. My marriage is in good shape. I am sitting on top of my career path. How necessary is this God really? And for some of us, that is right where we are with the, the border of that new land well, the thing is, you, you go, I'll, I'll still be faithful to God, but I just really wonder, is it essential to my life? Because look how far I've come, even as I've been walking steadily away from him. I think one of the greatest things that can happen to us is a sudden and imposed weakness that forces us to renew our faith in him. See, I know me. 
If I was the guy with the twisted ankle, I wouldn't sit by that rock for very long. I just, that's the kind of guy I am. I'm not proud of it. But I know I'd be like, I got to do something for myself. And I'd hobble and I'd get further lost and I would miss out on the rescue. I think that's the way a lot of us are. And so sometimes what God does is he breaks us so profoundly, even the desire to hobble is useless. You can only go about six inches and you're just laying there. And it's in that broken and helpless place that for the first time our souls go, I've got nothing else, and we cry out to God because we realize just how little power we have in the situation. And we cry out, and then we see him come through and deliver, and our faith grows. And after seeing that kind of delivery, our faithfulness also grows. You know, the other thing that we sometimes are challenged to have faith in is instability, where it's like, do you ever feel like life just keeps throwing one thing after another? You're out of one jam, and you're right in another one. And it's like, no matter what you do, you can't seem to just get a time out and go, oh, everybody in the whole universe, just chill for a second. I need like a year where nothing goes wrong. Could I just get that? You know, for some of us, it's in finances. Every time we get one little leg up, oh, I put 300 in savings. Bang, air conditioning goes out. Seriously. Your kid twists her ankle and you got to get an x-ray or he says his foot hurts and you got to pay thousands in MRI bills or some hypothetical thing like that. And you're like, every time we get a little ahead, life just, bang, you're too, you're too comfortable. And you're like, when am I going to get a break? Do you ever feel like you can't even breathe or reflect or think because life won't leave you alone for two seconds? Not everyone feels like that, but some of you are going, oh, amen. That's my whole life right now. I can't even concentrate on your message right now. That's how unstable, that's how unstable my life feels. And Jesus says to these people, listen, I know it feels like that, but the promise he gives them is a picture of a future where he is coming soon and he will bring rest, reward, vindication, and peace. You know, four times in these seven letters, Jesus says, I'm coming. I'm going to come. I'm going to come. And, and three of them, they're negative. To Ephesus, he says, I'm coming to remove your lampstand. To Pergamum, he says, I'm coming to judge you with the sword of my mouth. To Sardis, he says, I'm coming to judge you like a thief climbing over the walls of your city at night. So in all three of those things, I'm coming is not welcome news when Jesus goes, hey, hey, I'm coming. And those three churches go, oh, man. But to this one church, he goes, hey, hold on. He says, I'm coming soon. The first time he says those words, they're words of promise and hope. I know it seems like you're not going to make it another day, but hold on to what little you have because I am coming. You can count on it. I know it seems like you're not going to last another day, but I promise you those animals won't get you. I promise you, you will not die of thirst. Hang on, I'm coming. This is not how your story ends. You know, this word of peace that's coming would have been really encouraging to the people, especially in Philadelphia. They lived on, a, um, on a, a fault line, and they had earthquakes all the time. For 20 years, there was like an earthquake a year, but in AD 17, 
There was a devastating earthquake that destroyed, it leveled the entire region. It knocked out the city of Philadelphia and just a little ways over, it destroyed the city of Sardis. It left everything in ruins and the people who paid the highest price were the ones who were in the big city because in the big city all the buildings were made out of of marble and granite and they had tall columns and when the earth shook, these heavy things fell and they smashed and crushed people. Hundreds and hundreds died, smashed in the rubble of the buildings that collapsed. And as a result, the people in in Philadelphia constantly lived under this tension of people who live in an earthquake zone. In fact, even the historians who lived during that time said, the people of Philadelphia are morons because they keep going back to the city and rebuilding. That's what we say about the people in Tornado Alley, right? We're going to go back and rebuild. Why? Stop it. Live somewhere where there's no tornadoes. But these people loved their region, and they kept going back. And, and, and the one historian said, when you visit Philadelphia, these people have come up with every ingenious way to prop up their walls because they're all cracked and falling. You walk to the city, and it's constantly tense. Everybody's glutes are so tight because they're just always walking around. It's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen any minute. That's how tense these people were. Imagine living constantly in the shadow of nervousness, fear, calamity around the next moment, no warning whatsoever. And Jesus gives them this promise. He said, I am coming, and when I come, you will receive your reward and your vindication. And listen, all who are victorious will become pillars in the temple of my God. And they'll never have to leave it. And those words were especially meaningful because after the earthquakes, a lot of the smarter citizens fled the city And they made farms on the outskirts in the valley in order to escape the damage of the earthquakes. And they longed to return to their city, but they knew it was foolish and unsafe. And imagine hearing these words, just hang on because there's a day coming when the strain of this worldly life will be over. You'll finally get to unclench, relax, rest, stop being afraid. And I promise that if you will wait for me, trust in me, honor my name, hold on to my promises, that day is coming for you. Just don't be one of those who, when the deliverance finally comes, you've hobbled off to some other lost place, and we can't find you to bring you home. I know some of you are in a pretty good place in your life, and this is a sermon you got to bookmark because it's not for you today. You've wrestled to stay awake because these aren't words meant for you right at this moment. But I know for some of you, that's exactly where your life is today. And you have flirted so often with escapist fantasies of pulling the eject switch, bailing on this whole thing. Maybe you thought about leaving a relationship. Maybe you thought about leaving the faith. Maybe you thought about leaving the good team and just being one of the bad guys. Do you ever fantasize about that? Would it stumble if you knew that your pastor sometimes fantasized? What if I was just able to be one of the bad guys again? I used to be. And I know that it's the strain of life that tempts you to bail. And the encouragement of Jesus is if you're still here and holding on to his word, don't stop. I know that what you're going through seems impossible to finish, but he will get you through it. And a day is coming for all of us 
when at the end of the world, the faithful will rest forever with him. It doesn't matter how this story finishes because it's not the end. The next act of our story is all of us, glorious and peaceful and full of joy. So where are you in your faith and your faithfulness? Do you really believe that what God says is true no matter what life is telling you? For some of you, life hasn't given you good news lately. It's been hard. I've walked with some of you through that very, very hard thing, and I know, I feel it, I see it. It's not easy to be in your shoes. And in that state, you're going to hear a lot of whispered lies. But can you hear the voice of God still ring through all that? All the promises given to us about the end are meant for those who hold on to Christ's word till the end. I can't resist the temptation to end with a negative Miami Heat story. I remember seeing the footage of those fans in Miami who thought game six was a done deal, quit on their team, walked out of the stadium, and then in the parking lot found out their team was rallying and winning and going into overtime, and they banged on the doors to be let back in. But stadium policy is once you leave, you can't come back. Yeah, but I spent 8000 bucks on those floor seats. Then you should have sat in it and stayed. Because the great finish is for the ones who stick around. You don't get to walk out early and go, oops, my bad. I shouldn't have done it. All the wonderful promises are meant for those who persevere and hold on to his word to the very end. And I pray that we will all make it because his word is strong enough to carry us. Don't look for the strength in yourself. Faith isn't something you reach deep down and generate. Faith is always a response to the greatness and the love of our God for us. Do you know that? Faith isn't a property of you. It's a property of God. So hold on to his word. It's good enough, strong enough to get you through what you're going through. And you will see the light on the other side of that tunnel. That is the promise of God for us. So why don't we bow and just respond to him? For me, maybe the most um, compelling line in this letter the one I might cross-stitch and hang on my wall are these words of Christ in verse 11. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have. Don't wander off. Stay where I told you to stay. I am going to come back for you. Don't doubt. Don't stop believing. Don't stop waiting for me. Remain. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have. And I believe those are words that Jesus really wants to speak to some of you who are really in the midst of crisis right now. So I don't just leave you with that. And uh, in your own words, I'm going to encourage you to respond to the strong promises of God and say, God, give me real faith in you so that I might become even more faithful to you.
Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.